Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to Wannabe, the podcast that takes you from where you are now to where you want to be in 30 minutes or less. I'm Imriel Morgan, founder of Content is Queen, a podcast community committed to amplifying diverse voices. Want to unleash your voice? Visit contentisqueen.org to discover our creator community and how we can take your podcast to the next level. Back to Wannabe. Season six is all about women in sport and fitness. I'm beyond thrilled to bring you an episode with a real game changer today. We have the remarkable Eniola Aluko joining us. From scoring 33 goals for the England national team to her pioneering work as a sport director at both Aston Villa Women and Angel City FC, Eniola's influence on and off the pitch is unparalleled. In today's episode, we'll explore her journey into football, her British Nigerian identity, and how she's become a beacon for change in women's football and sports leadership. Eniola also talks about the struggle for representation in sports, dealing with racism, and her views on politics and identity. Trust me, you don't want to miss this one. Who did you want to be before you became who you are today? And why? I've always played football, so football has always been part of my life. It's my earliest memory. But women's football wasn't really on my radar in terms of like, oh, I want to be a professional women's footballer. So I had lots of different influences in terms of like, what do I want to be? So from the age of like 10 to 12, I was obsessed with the bill. If you remember As in the like bill. the TV show. <laughs> the TV show. <laughs> so I wanted to be a policewoman. And then I kind of got obsessed with like courtroom dramas. So yeah. alongside football, which was like a consistent thread in my life. Mm -hmm. Those are kind of the three things that I wanted to be. So I ended different. up being a lawyer. I mean, yeah. I, I went to law school whilst I played football and, and became a lawyer. It sounds like pretty much spot on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I guess like with football being in your life from the very beginning, mm. why would women's football be on, like professional yeah. football be on your radar? It's like only just about becoming on everyone's radar. Yeah, right? exactly. My sort of upbringing in football was completely different to what it is now for young girls, which, mm -hmm. you know, I'm happy it's changed because... Now, as a young girl, you can grow up and say, OK, that's the pathway to become a professional footballer. Mm -hmm. That just wasn't the case for me. Everything I watched on TV was men's football. I grew up as a Man United fan, obsessed with like Ryan Giggs and Eric Cantona. All my heroes were men, like yeah. male footballers. The nearest thing to kind of like a female role model in sport was the Williams sisters. Mm. So I, I did try tennis for a little bit, but I wasn't as good at tennis as I was at football. And my temperament in tennis wasn't as patient. Yeah, um, I, okay. I just, I didn't understand why I wasn't like really good at tennis. So I think football was always my destiny. But I, I think I've realized often when I look back on my life that it didn't really stop me from becoming a female footballer. Like even mm -hmm. though I couldn't see it, yeah. it was something that I just really wanted to do and the pathway opened up for me to do it. And I'm very grateful for that. Speaking of the pathway, what was your pathway into it? Because I mean, it sounds like you were consistent and always playing. Women's football isn't on the radar. It's not 
abundantly clear how you would get into it or how, mm-hmm. like but I guess for most people back then it just would not have been clear so how did you find your way into the career that you did because it it's a really incredible career that you've built in professional football one of the leading women in the UK for football like you really came and dominated the sport below 12 I played with boys the whole time so I was oh, playing wow. in my school boys team I was the only girl in the school boys team and, and was very happy doing that I had the odd comments from parents that didn't like the fact that I made their sons look, didn't, you know, embarrass their sons. And that was not easy as a youngster. At the age of 12, I joined a girls team called Leaford Athletic. Mm-hmm. And that was like a local team in Birmingham where I grew up. Now, often with those teams, you do have like England scouts or, or sort of scouts of more sort of organised teams that come along and watch sometimes in like festivals or tournament festivals and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. I got scouted by Birmingham at a local nice. festival in Warwick. And they asked me to come down for trials and I went to trials for Birmingham City and then got into more the organised game where there was a league and there was other girls that played and we all played in the same kit and all yeah. of this stuff. And so from sort of 12 onwards, I was in more of an organised setup where there was different age groups. I was being coached. And then at the age of 14, I got into the England team, which was obviously not the senior England team, but... Yeah. You know, I was in the under 15s and then when you get into under 16s and, and, and so on. Um, and that was obviously quite serious. Yeah. You know, you, you get sort of a letter through the post that you've been picked to represent wow. your country. And, and at the time, I actually didn't have, um, I was you know, I was naturalised in terms of, you know, I've, I've been in England since I was one years old, but never actually had my British passport. Yeah. And I remember feeling really weird about the fact that I was being called up for England but just didn't have my UK passport it really hit home as to like my identity uh, Mm -hmm. you know as a sort of young Nigerian girl I was always obviously aware of my Nigerian background but I think it hit home when I first got called for England and shortly after I got my my British passport and it was it was just an honour and a privilege and once I was in the England system it really started to feel real Mm -hmm. that like I'm better than like the boys that I play you know, at school with, yeah. like, they don't represent England. I think it, then my talent started to really feel like, okay, this is something I can potentially do in future, although there wasn't really a professional league or a professional setup that I could aspire to be in. That is insane. I mean, I love I love that there was, well, I don't love that there was a questioning of identity, but I also love that you acknowledge that there was, like, this moment of, like, reckoning, like, what yeah. does this mean? Um, and was some of that to do with the fact that you were like very proud of your Nigerian heritage? Or were you feeling actually, no, I am British, but there's just like a, di- like, was it just the disconnect of not having all of the trimmings of quote unquote Britishness? Yeah, I think what is considered British has changed over time. I think I never, I never felt Nigerian, actually. Oh, wow. So it was the opposite. I okay. never really connected with that side of myself. You know, I, I hadn't been back to Nigeria since I was born. I went to Nigeria when I was 12 and it wasn't a very good experience and so just came back and was just you know didn't really feel like I was connected to Nigeria yeah until much later when I went to university so for me it was really all about like being really English and Mm. like being blending in and being seen as very British and very English which you know I think for the most part I was I was a young girl from Birmingham like many others but the reality is is that my name's Eniolu Luko you know, I'm a, I'm a young black girl. Yeah. I was different and, and that was okay. But I think it takes time for you to accept your difference and mm-hmm. accept your, 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 you know, your difference is actually your superpower. And at the time I just wanted to blend in um, yeah. and just wanted I to be accepted feeling. as, 
Yeah, it's like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm I'm English. I play for England. So that was a bit of a journey for me in terms of my identity. And it gets thrust upon you even more when you're representing your country. country. Yeah, I can imagine the pressure yeah. must be insane. I've never had to represent this country and I'm not sure I would. But yeah. um, that's just because of the political climate that we yeah. exist in right now. Yeah. But I definitely can empathise and relate to this feeling of difference. My mum moved us to St. Kitts where she grew up slash is from when we were nine and okay. I think up until that point I remember just always feeling very British very like English British yeah. now I'd say British more so than English and then going to St Kitts and be like I'm almost like I had a, a different you stand set. out yeah I was mm -hmm. different I was not Kittitian by their standards I looked like a Kittitian person but I wasn't and I just remember feeling that massive disconnect and feeling like ostracized a little bit yeah and there was a and that othering that you get mm -hmm. that you, you can experience here too but it's also really strange like you said mm -hmm. to go back and also feel mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. this isn't it for me either mm -hmm. and as like you I went back after well I went back just after uni and and during uni and it was completely different yeah like, felt yeah, more at peace feel a, feel a sense of, <laughs> yes yeah. and now it's a sense of home like yeah but I, I definitely empathize with that um so thank you for sharing that I think it's a shared experience yeah, yeah. for sure it's um something I talked a lot about in my book they don't teach this it, there was a whole chapter on identity and and embracing hyphenated identities mm -hmm. you know British Nigerian or British whatever you are as, a, as an immigrant in this country it is a shared experience I think for many of us yeah and it really kind of encapsulates what British means now you know it's not just English no you know, exactly it's, um, <laughs> it's the whole sort of the remnants of like colonialism and lots of people come out coming over and and helping this country and being the fabric of this country yes, that, exactly. I think that's what you know that's what kind of British is but it's also like it's turned into something good because of course we look at who represents Britain exactly on the global stage it is very diverse and actually that's kind of what we want to keep seeing it yeah. is very beautiful actually yeah. when you look at how we're represented now versus yeah. way back when exactly. and actually what we're seeing on the ground is very different to what's shown on the global stage as well I know that and also just knowing that with women's football because it's not as well resourced as mm -hmm. the men's mm -hmm. leagues that you have to do both you have to kind of yeah, find exactly. a way to make a living whilst also doing what you love yeah. which is you know the sport how did you find that and how did you find like the splitting of your time even though you're still a professional footballer and professional would imply that you could do it like full time and put your all into it but I'm guessing that's just not always the case yeah it wasn't always the case and I think the times have moved on where we do have a professional league now you know the Lionesses obviously have won the European mm -hmm. Championships Champions of Europe are going to go into the World Cup you know very much the favourites but when I was sort of post getting called up for England up until 21 it wasn't really a career path for me it was very much a hobby mm -hmm. I was on 100 pound a week playing wow. for Charlton for me that was like the best it was going to get training twice a week and then having to balance my studies A levels GCSEs so actually all of my energy and focus was going into my academics because I just never thought of football as a full-time career. Very much was sort of on the path to becoming a lawyer and really knuckled down and, and you know used football as, a, as an outlet and a, as a hobby mm -hmm. but didn't think for one second that I would be where I am now you know having played professional football around the world and now sort of full-time broadcasting in football yeah. in men's football and women's football and it's amazing how life just surprises you yeah. you know and um you just kind of have to adapt and go with the the times I'm quite grateful actually that I, I had to balance both because it's made me quite a versatile person. Mm -hmm. It's meant that all my eggs aren't in one basket. Yeah. You know, now there's sort of different, different income streams and it makes me sort of more of a 
multitasker and I can do different things with my time. Whereas I think sometimes footballers, particularly in the men's game, they come out of the game quite institutionalised and don't really know how to deal with retirement yeah. and, and what to do with the rest of their life. And we retire early, like yeah. in our mid-30s. Particularly in football, I would really encourage footballers to always kind of have something else. Yeah, You know, invest your money and do, do things that are going to sort of put you in a position post-retirement to continue going with your career. Mentally, what is it like to retire? so much younger than everyone else your peers your parents like how does that work yeah it's a good I question guess technically you'd really, retire twice though. yeah like I've never really thought about it in terms of like age really I mean you just you get to a point where you just can't play at the level you've always played and typically for women it's 35 for men it's coming 37 38 so it's similar age in professional sport your contracts start getting worse once you hit 30 <laughs> oh wow so there's quite a lot of ageism when it comes to contracts post 30 you know you're not really seen as an asset anymore mm -hmm. uh, unless you're a bit of a freak like Ronaldo or you know some of these guys like Ibrahimovic who's still playing at 40 but I probably retired a little bit earlier than I should I retired at 33 and I was in Italy at the time and you know I'd done everything I've wanted to do with my career I'd you know, played at the highest level. I'd won trophies in Italy. I'd gone and learned a new language. I'd wow. traveled Italy. It was a really amazing experience. One of the reasons I retired was because I didn't really want to like almost go up the mountain and come down the mountain. I didn't want to, I didn't want to play at a lower level. Yeah. Um. I think I was lucky that I, I played at a high level for so long that I just didn't see the point in dragging it out longer than it needed to yeah, and like end on a high yeah right. end on a high end at the top of the mountain and because of what I said earlier in terms of like I had other things going on so I was already my broadcast career had already started I'd done a master's in executive management in football so I was kind of excited to start on that path which was you know tapping into my law skills as well so I was sort of preparing for my career after football anyway mm -hmm. and so when the opportunity came for me to move into my first exec management role I thought okay this is the sign for me to stop yeah and you know move into another phase of my life and you know I'm not saying that's the right way it's different for different people but that's definitely something that satisfied me and four years on I've not really missed playing okay because I've been so busy with other things stay tuned up next we dive into Eniola's life off the pitch and reshaping football for the better Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Let's get straight back into it. 
I wanted to change tact ever so slightly. So when you called out the England manager for racism, could you just talk us through what that was like for you and like the moments leading up to doing something like that? Because I can imagine it would be terrifying going up against someone that the the backlash potentially could be so terrifying. But talk us through what you were feeling and experiencing. It was probably the worst time of my life. That, that sort of two-year period under that manager, Mark Sampson. Bearing in mind, by this time, I'd I'd been in the England team nine years. So I was an established part of the team. I was a well-respected member of the team. Obviously playing league football um, and, and doing well to get called in. And I just felt very othered and, and uh, I felt like I was kind of on this hierarchy of people um, and was found myself kind of at the bottom of that hierarchy. And what what a lot of people don't realize is racism's not just things said. Mm-hmm. It's a feeling. Mm-hmm. It's a look. It's you know you walk into a lift and the coach doesn't say hi to you, or a group of coaches all collectively are very negative, even though you don't really understand why. All of these things are happening, and you don't really know why. And then something racist is said, and you go, ah, oh, okay, okay, everything that adds up. That kind of confirms it. Yeah. But you feel like you're going mad because, as I said, for nine years I, I was in the England team with no problem. So honestly, I think I did what footballers do, which is like I just want to play and get out of here and go. I was very unhappy in the England team at that time, but I just thought, let me get on with it. Let me play my football. Ironically, I I was playing probably my best football because I think I was channeling a lot of that unhappiness and frustration into my football and it was Mm -hmm. kind of like a you know a bit of a sort of you know two fingers up to him so ultimately I think it kind of all came to a head when I was asked to be part of a culture review the football association ironically because I was such an established part of the team asked me to be part of a culture review and a lot of these questions were about diversity and how I felt in the England team Mm -hmm. and I honestly felt like it was a avenue for me to be honest and and talk about my experiences because I hadn't really spoken about it to anyone with any authority other than some of my teammates who Mm -hmm. knew that I was struggling so as part of this review I was honest and said like look these are the things that have been said to me this is how I felt for quite a while now and I'm kind of glad this is being asked because like I don't want anyone else to feel the way I feel. And I thought that that would be dealt with confidentially. And and the whole purpose of doing a review was to review it so that they would speak to him. And, you know, he would change his management style a little bit with with certain people. That then, as I came to find out, there was a very strong bond between certain people within the Football Association at the time. And so all of that information obviously got back to the coach. Or I suspect it got back to the coach and it got leaked to the press. About 10 days after I was part, or I think it was 12 days after I was part of that culture review, I was dropped from the team. Wow. So... Many things happened, but you know, I guess like the timeline of when things happened. Yeah, like everything's just, it it all felt very calculated. And I was dropped for the team again for the first time in 11 years. So... It's not it's not so much getting dropped. It was the manner in which I was dropped and, and the context in which I was dropped. It wasn't a football-related decision. Even yeah. when I asked and said, like, is it based on football? I was told it wasn't. So I had effectively reported racism and then got dropped 12 days later. And at that point, I just felt, okay, well, this is wrong. And what I felt was a safe space has now kind of been used against me. Up until that point, you know, I was still trying to deal with things quite confidentially. I had a great relationship with the FA. And then it got leaked to the press. And 
as you know, if when things get out in the press, it's a whole nother beast. It's, it's a whole nother monster. Definitely bad, yeah. And obviously the press, the tabloid press, ostracized me. You know, let's let's paint you out to be a money grabber. Let's paint you out to be a snowflake, somebody that, you know... British oh, press. it's not racist. Mm. Oh, you know, you've got to prove your racism and all of these things that I was dealing with for the first time in my life. So it was really, it was a really horrible period. There was a period when every day I was getting up to new headlines. Twitter at the time was actually a saving grace because I was able to like directly call out some of this stuff and say like, this is a lie, this isn't true. And then, you know, ultimately the Football Association then were kind of held accountable in terms of, you know, we went to a parliamentary hearing. The government at the time was so, so helpful to me. Wow, okay, um, that's surprising. Yeah, great. I mean, and this is the thing, and, and I think we'll, we, we might, be able to get onto this you know politics is so divisive in this country and it's 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 very binary but the 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 truth is in my experience and I can only speak to my experience at the worst time of my life when the probably the biggest football institution in the world had to be held to account for racism I I couldn't have held them to account without the government and I mean that and when I say the government it was obviously led by conservative government but Mm -hmm. there was also Labour MPs on the parliamentary committee yeah all of which collectively agreed this was not acceptable yeah so that's an example of a coalition of mps coming together to solve something yeah on my behalf and i you know i didn't do anything to deserve that really other than sort of stand in my truth and say no i you know this is this happened and this yeah. is not right so sometimes I, I look at politics and i think like nothing is really achieved by this side of binary divisive polarizing way forward you know i'm very nuanced in my approach i voted for the conservative party and i was very open about that in 2019 yes i I remember seeing that and i was like oh that's right yeah but to be fair i know a lot of people who did but previously i voted remain yeah so people instantly go oh black woman votes for tories that's a bit weird but actually i'm not a tory you know i voted for the tories in that specific snapshot of time for the reasons that I've just expressed, I was very, very grateful to the government for what they did on my for behalf. The support. Yeah. Um, but previously I'd voted Remain. So these labels that we attach to who we vote for, I don't treat my political leaning like my football team, where you support a football team all your life. Yeah. <laughs> really what you should do with politics is vote in the snapshot of time. If the, the election was tomorrow, I probably would vote Labour because you know i've been so unimpressed with you know but previously i voted Tories, so it should always be nuanced it should always be informed but i think we make a mistake of going oh my god you know that's your label for the rest of your life so anyway i think that was my experience with the it was a very very difficult time very difficult time very lonely time what did you have in the way of support to lean on during this because I've only had like a Twitter pylon and I remember feeling like I was losing my mind and that was it's like horrible. 72 hours of my life where I was like did I say that? Yeah. I don't think I said that. Did I say that? Rewatching things over and over again to be yeah. like I know I didn't say that but still feeling <laughs> like I have done something wrong because there's just so much coming at you from the yeah. public from press whatever so i mean i I, I had support obviously like i had support from family and friends and Mm -hmm. people who knew me and some players uh, who sort of privately messaged me and said like you know we stand by you and support you a lot of them didn't feel like they could do it publicly because the culture had been created where if you come out and speak against the manager you would be punished for that and i didn't want that for players 
So I kind of understood the public silence, but mm-hmm. there was a lot of collective support privately. When you transitioned over and you, you were really everywhere. Like I just remember like headlines, the headlines shift, right? Like they went from all of the, ah, uh, you're accusing football of racism and all yeah. of that stuff. And actually it shifted to like you being about your talent and your skills, which is probably yeah. what they should have been focusing on in the first yeah. place. I felt a lot of support from a lot of people. I think people just saw my truth, mm-hmm. my genuine, authentic truth. And then I think overcoming that, I think resonates with a lot of people. You know, I had to move on. I didn't want to be defined by that case as yeah. well. So a lot of the time I didn't want to, you know, I talk about it now as a reference point in my life, but I don't feel like I'm defined by that. But sometimes people want to box you and say, yeah. you're the whistleblower, you're this and you're that. And I think moving forward and not being bitter about that experience and and forming new relationship with the FA and all of these things I think people see that yeah seeing your career progress seeing how you've transitioned from the sport into the broadcast and really just kind of honing that craft honing that skill is actually really beautiful and actually hearing men in my life also talk well of you as well like I don't know oh, that good. men are always great at speaking well of women in football but oh, really? I have heard them say really great things and like say actually yeah she's a really good broadcaster she knows what she's talking about and right. like being complimentary because I, I, I don't know that I mean misogyny is a thing and so it is a thing um, in football it's a yeah, it, huge thing I've like, men seen it cannot like <laughs> some men just cannot get their heads around it yeah and it's really strange because as I said to you you know I've watched football men's football as early as a a, a man my age Mm -hmm. that's all I watched Mm -hmm. there was no women's football on tv so I can reference Man United losing the FA Cup in 1995 as much as anybody else yeah right now the ability to articulate that and the ability to communicate my experience playing is what maybe separates me from others but the reality is just because, you know, I'm a female doesn't mean I don't understand the game. Yeah. Can't analyze the game. But like people generally just see gender. Yeah. You know, the amount of times I've been called a tick box or you're just there because, you know, you're you're a tick box. And it's it's hard because it's like, well, there's been a shift towards diversity, obviously. So there is a conscious effort to include different voices and different faces but I have to be good at what I do I can't sit there talking rubbish yeah exactly (laughs) you know but people don't want to acknowledge that they just want to acknowledge your identity but I think there's a lot of jealousy as well a lot of men would love to be in my position yeah of course they would and probably be up there chatting absolute nonsense too (laughs) they'll be terrified because that when that light goes on and the cameras are on it's a different experience but all pundits get criticized we're paid for our professional opinion so whether you're Gary Neville, one of the most established pundits or, you know, a new pundit coming in, you will get criticism yeah. because it's an opinion and people yeah. don't agree. And, and actually the best opinions are the ones that divide opinion, are the ones that challenge you and go, oh, actually, what do I think? Oh, I didn't think of it that way. Or yeah. that's, I try to, yeah. I actually try to communicate a different perspective as much as I can yeah. to, not to be controversial, but, but just to be thought provoking yeah. in a way that, people go oh do you know what I agree with that I didn't think of it in that way whilst obviously analyzing and breaking down the game in a way that people can enjoy final question what is the best advice you've ever received and the worst advice you've ever received wow I've received a lot of wise advice the best advice and one of my favorite quotes is never let success get to your head or failure to your heart so the ability to always stay humble 
and grounded is really important but failure is part of that journey part mm-hmm. of success and you're not defined by failure either that's always stayed with me because i think humility is important whilst also being ambitious the worst advice i've received has always been around like be silent don't rock the boat and it's probably because the person giving that advice doesn't have the courage to be true because you're not really rocking the boat if you're just being honest yeah right or or being truthful and there's a time and place for honesty and truth but during that case and the, the fa case there were so many people that were like you're gonna lose everything mm-hmm. if you do this and that advice was coming from a place of fear all fear yeah and the reality is your power often comes from letting go and saying well even if i do lose something this is what i stand for this is what it's going to cost me yeah and you become more powerful for that so any advice that tells you to shut up don't speak in your truth don't rock the boat you know it, it's almost abusive you know that that's where abuse can start yeah. to perpetuate and yeah. i don't take fear-based advice great <laughs> very well perfect <laughs> do not take fear-based advice is I love what that. I would say. What a beautiful note to end on. Thank you so much, Aniela. This has been Thank incredible. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank, Thank you. Thank you for your time. <laughs> Please. What an enlightening episode with Eniola. From her days on the field to shattering glass ceilings in sports broadcasting and leadership, her story is one that's left me buzzing with inspiration. We can all take a leaf out of her playbook when it comes to breaking new ground. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Wannabe. If Eniola's story has touched you, consider sharing it with others right now. The world needs more stories of resilience and triumph. Keep up with the latest from Wannabe by following us on your favourite podcast player and on Instagram at contentisqueenhq. Until next time, bye. This is a Content is Queen production, hosted and produced by me, Imrian Morgan. Editing by Joseph Perry. Sound design by Amber Miller. Production assistant was Sharai White. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.